Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, August 29th, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1968, the Motion Picture Association of America uh, began a voluntary rating system for American films. Now, some local communities across the country were calling for governmental censorship at this time. Films like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Blow Up were at the heart of this initial backlash. And so the rating system originally began with G, M, R, and X. I didn't remember that. I was only one years old when that happened. Uh, But M was later changed to PG, and then in 1984, PG-13 was added, primarily due to the controversy over the violence in the film Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And then in 1990, NC-17 replaced X in the rating system, and rating descriptors were added so that uh, people, notably parents, would know what types of material is going to be in each of the elements of the movie. Well, welcome to the seventh and final installment of our current summer series, After God's Own Heart. We're looking at the life of King David, and this summer we started this journey with a teenage shepherd boy that led to a battle with a giant, a powerful friendship, years of encounters with a maniacal king, the eventual coronation of this man after God's own heart, and then last week an improbable stumbling through a sin-drenched escapade of lust, adultery, murder, and an almost successful cover-up. And if you thought last week's story was intense, wait till you get a load of this week's. By the way, did you know that Close to 60% of all films uh, in the first 50 years of the rating system received an R rating, 60%. Eugene Peterson, in his book on the life of David, Leap Over a Wall, writes this. David was no stranger to death or tears or murder or disappointment or sin. But no event combined all of these elements with such intensity and ferocity as did the matter of Absalom. And that is our topic and subject for today. So yeah, I think today's story might be uh, classified with an R rating uh, in terms of thematic content, but are you ready for this exciting finale of our saga? As, as the young people say to, today, let's go. Here we go. 2 Samuel 13, beginning at verse 1. Some time passed. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and David's son Amnon fell in love with her. Okay, so as King David had multiple wives, at least 10 of which we know of, um, probably more, which means that he had multiple children, most of whom were half brothers and sisters with each other. David's oldest son was Amnon, born to his wife Ahinoam. And ironically, the name Amnon means trustworthy and faithful, something that we will see he was neither of. Absalom was David's third son, uh, born to uh, Maaka, the daughter of the king of Geshur. And Amnon, number one son, was smitten with David's daughter Tamar, who happened to be Absalom's full sister. 
Now, in order to keep this story's R rating and not move into NC-17 territory, I'll summarize what transpired. <clears throat> Completely infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar, Amnon tries to uh, woo her, seduce her, and then he forces himself upon her despite her protests. After the dastardly deed is done, he then sends her away in the walk of shame, a ruined woman now with no hope for a married future. So Tamar turns to her brother Absalom for help. Absalom invites for her to stay in his house with her for the rest of her life. She was now no longer eligible to marry anyone. Verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he became very angry. But he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had raped his sister. Now we have to wonder, don't we, whether or not David was still feeling a little bit guilty over his own recent sexual past, which may have made him hesitant to discipline Amnon for Amnon's heinous crime. But what's even more telling is that it says he, he does nothing. Even, he doesn't even say anything to, uh, uh, to Tamar. He, isn't, he doesn't reach out as a father to console his daughter that has just gone through an unspeakable crime. Talk about a major lapse in parenting here. And maybe that's why, maybe she knew her relationship with her father was such that that's why she didn't go to him in the first place. Instead, she went to her brother, Absalom. Maybe she knew or suspected that her father would not offer her any comfort or justice. Well, two years passed, two years David still has taken no action against Amnon, and we discovered that Absalom has been plotting a way to avenge his sister's honor. He invites all of his brothers uh, to his house for a celebration, and then he has, a la uh, Game of Thrones, Red Wedding style, he has his servants murder Amnon at the feast. Now, of course, David is heartbroken when he finds out the news that another one of his sons has been killed. Sex and murder have now come back to inflict pain on David's family, just like the prophet Nathan had predicted after David's affair with Bathsheba. Chapter 13, verse 37 to 39. But as Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amihud, king of Geshur, David mourned for his son day after day. Absalom, having fled to Geshur, stayed there three years, and the heart of the king went out yearning for Absalom, for he was now consoled over the death of Amnon. All right, so Absalom flees to his mother's homeland, Geshur. He stays there for three years. And then after a suitable time of mourning over his eldest son's death, David's heart now turns to his third son, Absalom. Nevertheless, even though it says his heart goes out to him, David refuses to send for Absalom to come back home to Israel. Everyone, everyone around the palace can see how this has affected David. And finally, his nephew Joab, who also happens to be the commander of the army, speaks up. And Joab convinces David to let Absalom return. It involves a little bit of street theater. I commend it to your own reading in chapter 14. But now we get to verse 21 and 23 of chapter 14. Then the king said to Joab, very well, I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. So Joab set off, went to Geshur, and brought back Absalom to Jerusalem. The king said, 
Let him go to his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom went to his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, the author of 2 Samuel then gives us this interesting paragraph telling us a little bit more about Absalom. And evidently, Absalom was the equivalent of an ancient Near Eastern male supermodel. Very good looking, beautiful skin and complexion, the envy of all. And it said he had amazing hair. Uh, for any NFL fans, especially Steeler fans, he had Troy Polamalu hair. I mean, it was that amazing. The stuff that you would make hair commercials about as well. Well, and, and it says that at one point he uh, trimmed off his hair and, and the excess hair weighed three and a half pounds. We're also told that he had four children, three boys and one daughter. And what's interesting is they don't give us the name of the boys, but do you want to guess what the name of his daughter was? Yes, Tamar. He named it after, he named her after his sister. 2 Samuel 14, verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So despite the fact that David's heart, the Bible says, went out to Absalom, he still won't see him, even though he's been back living in his own country for two years. So what is it that's keeping David from seeing Absalom? Is it his pride, his stubbornness? Was, was he worried about what others might think if he's uh, too gracious towards his ex-convict of a son? I mean, can you imagine living in the, uh, for two years in the same city and never once going to see your own flesh and blood. The reality is it had been five years since they had seen each other. Five years. Well, Absalom, always the go-getter, uh, he lives next to Joab, the general. Well, he tries to get the general to speak a good word on his behalf to his father. Joab ignores him. So Absalom takes the next logical step, anything that you and I would have thought of doing, and that is setting his neighbor's house or field on fire. Well, it got his neighbor's attention, that's for sure. And after Joab put out the fire, he's like, okay, I'll go speak to your dad. And he realizes that Absalom is just a son who wants to be reunited with his father. So once again, Joab becomes the intermediary before the, before the two. And we're at verses 32 and 33 of chapter 14. Absalom says, now, let me go into the king's presence. If there's guilt in me, let him kill me. There is guilt in him. Anyway, then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and prostrated himself with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now, it, it seems like they've made their peace, but does it really? I mean, there doesn't seem to be any real forgiveness here. I mean, it's been Five years since they've seen each other? Does this look like a, a gracious homecoming, a loving reunion? Does this look like true reconciliation? I mean, it seems like Absalom was, was allowed to return home, but what he really needed was his father, and I don't think he got that back. It seems to me like David, in an attempt to make sure that Absalom felt the uh, full weight of responsibility of his past sins, uh, missed something even greater. He missed the chance to truly forgive his son. He missed the chance to bestow grace upon this young man. He missed an opportunity for mercy. I mean, David missed being able to give Absalom the very thing that he, that he had received from God when he had sinned with Bathsheba. And now he's refusing to pass that on to others. 
And suddenly, at this moment in the story, Absalom's life takes a turn for the even worse. I mean, he now shifts away from his father forever. And Eugene Peterson uh, calls this the third monumental sin of David's life and the most inexcusable, um, as it was the one that he paid for with the most. He writes this, The adultery with Bathsheba was uh, an affair of a passionate moment. The murder of Uriah was a royal reflex to avoid detection, but the rejection of Absalom was a steady, determined refusal to share with his son what God had so abundantly shared with him. Day by day, he hardened in this denial of love. And so it's here that Absalom begins to turn the tables and intentionally now seeks to exclude his father from his life. 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 2. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the road into the gate of the city. Okay, so just inside the gates of cities in the ancient Near East, that was the place where people would gather to do business. It was the, the official and legal spot, kind of like coming to the courthouse today. And, and that if people had uh, a dispute with another person, they would come here to try to seek justice and equity. So Absalom's plan, and you have to admit it is a solid one, is to catch people before they make it to the king with their disputes. And, and Absalom would then say, oh, hey, good to see you. Where are you from? What tribe? Oh, yeah, I got some good friends. Have you ever been to... Anyway, what can I do for you? Oh, here's why we're here. Oh, unfortunately, he would say, the king doesn't have time to hear you today. But if I was king, I mean, you, you totally have a case, and I would, I would easily side on, on your behalf. And so every day he would do that. He would intercept, and he, the prince, right, with this royal entourage, with a chariot and, and, and horses and, and uh, men that are serving him, he would say the same thing. Where are you from? What's your cause? Oh, I'm sorry, the king doesn't have time to hear your cry today. It's a shame, because you really have a case. And if I was the king... I would have definitely cited it on your behalf. And then as Absalom is planting these seeds of discontent, uh, the author concludes by saying this. Oops, skip over that. By saying this, thus Absalom did to every Israelite who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And so now the seeds of rebellion have begun. And Absalom subverts the loyalty of the people. He guides them away from the palace before they could even learn whether or not what he said was true. And Absalom is moving into this time in his life where everything, uh, every decision he makes, or maybe this was his uh, thinking even before, it all revolves around him and what's best for him. So 11 years have now passed. 11 years. That's how long Absalom has been harboring this hatred, pain, and resentment. It was 11 years ago that his sister uh, Tamar was abused. Nine years since he killed his brother Amnon in retaliation. Six years since he returned from exile. Four years of sitting by the gate, stealing the part, hearts of the people. And now, after 11 years, he is ready for action. Verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please, let, let me go to Hebron and pay the vow that I've made to the Lord, for your servant made a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram. If, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. 
So, I mean, who's going to question a request to go and worship? Not David. Although it seems strange, he's been back for four years, only now he's going to go and worship? David doesn't question it at all. David evidently doesn't know he's been sitting at the gates of the city for four years. Well, the truth is Absalom is going to Hebron to be acclaimed the new king in place of his father. He's going to be leading a coup. And so he sends messengers secretly to the 12 tribes of Israel, letting them know, hey, come to see me in Hebron. I am going to become the new king. And so when his Absalom and his entourage make it to Hebron, which is where David was first made king of Judah, well, David finally figures out and draws the lines together and realizes what's taking place. And now David, his father, is faced with a decision. How will he respond to this young would-be king who wants his throne? A couple weeks ago, I shared with you uh, insights from this powerful book, a uh, very short book called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. And the first half of the book, he talks about being a king like Saul versus being a king like David. But in the second half of the book, he brings in the third king, Absalom. And Edward does a masterful job of reenacting a conversation that he imagines would have taken place between David and David's officials when word reached them that Absalom was soon to be made king in, uh, and, and would be now marching upon Jerusalem. And so he envisions David saying this, God once delivered a defenseless shepherd boy from the powerful mad king. He can yet deliver an old ruler from an ambitious young rebel. It is better that I be defeated, even killed, than to learn the ways of a Saul or the ways of an Absalom. The kingdom is not that valuable. Let him have it, if that be the Lord's will. Perhaps in God's eyes, I am no longer worthy to rule. Perhaps God is through with me. Perhaps it is his will for Absalom to rule. I honestly don't know. And if this is his will, then I want it. God may be finished with me. I did not fight to be king, and I will not fight to remain king. May God come tonight and take the throne, the kingship, and his anointing from me. I seek his will, not his power. I desire his will more than I desire a position of leadership. And with that, David chose to leave the city. I mean, he was king. It was rightly his. He willingly walked away. He would not throw spears and fight like Saul. He would not stand in God's way if indeed this was God's will. He willingly gave up the throne, which was never his to begin with. It was always God's. He didn't have to take it, to protect it, or to keep it. It was up to God to do whatever God chose. And Eugene Peterson has an insightful comment when he comes to this point in David's life. He says this, Hardship brings out the best in David. Suffering can, if we let it, make us better instead of worse. Suffering doesn't always or, or easily make us better. It often makes us worse. It could have made David worse. He could have become defiant and bitter and lonely, but he didn't. He became, again, what we now look back on as characteristically David. Humble, prayerful, compassionate. Peterson says that in his suffering, David recovered that core of his being. He recovered compassion and his extraordinary capacity to love. Well, the next chapter uh, and a half of 2 Samuel describes all the safeguards that David puts in place uh, when he flees what has now come to be known as the city of David. And one of the first 
uh, royal actions that Absalom undertakes when he enters the royal palace. And it, it was orchestrated by his father's chief advisor, Ahithophel. Ahithophel suggests that Absalom sleep with his father's concubines as a sign of his power and authority, not out of love, but out of power. And he'd do it up on the roof of the palace out for everyone to see. It would be a dramatic way of demonstrating who is in charge now. 2 Samuel 16, 23 says, Now in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel gave, that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the oracle of God. So all the counsel of Ahithophel was esteemed by both David and by Absalom. Kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it, that if, if David had maybe been neglecting his prayer life during this season? I mean, if, if consulting an advisor, no matter how esteemed, was as if one consulted an oracle of God, then why even talk to God in the first place? Just talk to your advisor. It's just like God. It also shows you how powerful a man Ahithophel was at this point. And he chose to cast his lots with an upstart young guy coming in. He didn't flee with David. He had a chance to, but he chose not to. And now he's top advisor to the new king. And so Ahithophel starts off chapter 17 by saying to Absalom, look, we've got to get your father now when he's on the run. Give me 12,000 men. We will catch him tonight. We will kill him and end any chance of him coming back and taking over the throne. Now, even though the Bible says the counsel of Ahithophel was this as if one had talked to God, Absalom says, well, let me check with another one of my father's advisors, a man named Hushai. Hushai wanted to flee with David, and David's like, no, 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 stay here. You be my eyes on the inside, and, and, and you just be there to support me. And so, uh, uh, naturally, when uh, Absalom asks Hushai, what do you think we should do? He contradicts Ahithophel. Oh, no, you don't want to leave now. No, no, no. Take some time. Get a full uh, army together, and then you yourself go with the army to catch David. I mean, what a, what a statement that would make. The whole country would be not united around you and see how powerful a leader that you are. Uh, Absalom actually listens to Hushai. In fact, in verse 14 uh, of 2 Samuel 17, it says, Absalom, all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring ruin on Absalom. So even the Bible says, oh, Ahithophel was right. If you would have uh, captured or killed David that night, it all would have been done. But no, God wanted that not to come to pass. And so everybody said, oh no, Hushai, his, we have to follow his. And in the end, Ahithophel has such a hard time with his advice not being taken that it says he takes his own life after that. And so when we get to chapter 18, this final military battle is looming large. David strategically divides his troop into thirds. He gives them instructions on how to fight. He was going to go with them in battle. They're like, no, no, no. You are more important than 10,000 of us. Please stay here. We'll take care of it. And before he leaves, he says this. Chapter 18, verses 4 and 5. The king said to them, well, okay, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by the hundreds and by the thousands. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, his, uh, the leaders of his three uh, troops, going out, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard it when the king gave the orders to the commanders concerning his son. 
So they're going off to battle. And David says, but, but don't hurt the leader because he's my son. I mean, what, what does that do to the morale of the troops heading out to battle? And we hear this conflict, right, within David's soul between nation and family. Verse 6 to 8. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. So David's men are victorious. Now all that's left is to find out what's going to happen with the renegade king, Absalom. The narrator tells us Absalom is riding his royal mule in the forest, and then unexplicably his head gets caught in low-hanging branches of a solid oak tree. Actually, it's not his head, it's his hair. It's his Troy Pulamalu hair that gets stuck up in the trees. And one of David's soldiers sees him. He tells the commander, Joab, uh, I think Absalom's just hanging out there in the forest, like literally hanging out there. Now, Joab, remember, he's not just the, the general of the army. He's the one who uh, Absalom had burned his crops, right? He says, uh, kill him. Just go kill him. And he's like, uh, we all heard the king. Uh, we're not supposed to. He goes, ah, forget this. Verse 14, Joab says, I will not waste time with this with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And then they throw his body into a pit in the forest and they cover it with stones. And then word comes back to David, who's back at, at wherever their headquarters was on the run, that the army was victorious, but Absalom was killed. And despite the news that the rebellion had been thwarted, all he can think about is his son. Verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up into his chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Author Frederick Buechner says, Absalom was both the thorn in David's flesh and the apple of his eye. And despite their tumultuous past, he still loved his son, even though he hadn't been able to show it while he was still alive. And now it's tearing up inside, and David doesn't care who knows. He suddenly has to live with the unimaginable. Buechner continues by recognizing that David meant what he said, of course, if he could have done the boys dying for him, he would have. If David could have paid the price for the boy's betrayal, he would have paid it. If he could have given his own life to make the boy live again, he would have given it. But Beekner says, but even a king can't do things like that. As history was later to prove, it takes a God. And that's why Jesus came. It's a powerful, it's a, it's a, it's a gut-wrenching story on so many levels. Author Beth Moore, in her book, A Heart Like His, makes this important statement when she is thinking about all the problems that David navigated throughout his life, some that were clearly not his fault, others that were obviously brought on by very, very poor decisions. She says this, we can't change the story, we can only be changed by it. 
one of the insights in today's saga, of course, it's easy to see how sin leads to more sin, right? Follow the pattern with me. Uh, Amnon disgraces his sister, which hardens David's heart. David doesn't deal with the sin of his son when he has the chance. So Absalom then responds to Amnon's sin by killing him. David then responds to Absalom's sin by shunning him. When David uh, refuses to forgive him, even though he allows him back into the country, sin continues to feed on sin. David lost his son Amnon because of the sin of Absalom, but David lost Absalom by his own sin, his own pride and stubbornness, and his refusal to share grace. My brothers and sisters, we all are called to break the cycle of sin in our lives, even when we have every right to lash out at those who have hurt us, because that's the model that Jesus gave us, to forgive one another as we have been forgiven by God himself. Second, there were so many opportunities for reconciliation in this story, and David never took any of them. So I have to ask you and me, what about your relationships? Your family, friendships, coworkers? Maybe, maybe there's someone in your life that you need to reach out to today, to call, to text, to write a letter, someone you need to contact, you need to begin to start bridging that gap. It doesn't mean everything's going to come back and be just as it was before. Uh, forgiveness Uh, And reconciliation does not always mean reunion. It's not always safe or even in your best interest to do so. But we are called as forgiven people of God to extend forgiveness and grace to others. David was indeed a man after God's own heart. He was far from perfect, just like you and me. May we follow David's example of turning to God in our darkest hours, but may we also learn from his mistakes as as a father and as a husband and, and even as a king. May we, like David, though, return to being people of compassion and prayer and love. And yeah, we may lose our ways from time to time. That's that's just part of being human. But may we always come back to that heart of love. I don't know about you, but I, for one, am grateful for this man of faith, this imperfect man, David, that we've been studying this summer for the life of this king. May we learn from it, take it to heart, and see whatever it is that God is saying to each one of us through his up-and-down, rated-R story. And all God's people said...